0: Jesus, our shepherd, brother, friend, prophet, priest, and king, as we listen to your word, please would you be with us. Please give me the lips of one who has been taught by you and give us all hearts that are humble and tremble at your word and want to love you and trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Please do sit down. I wonder when the last time um, was that you were asked for money. I wonder whether, like me, um, that kind of request comes so often that you struggle to be sure when the last time was. So I think in the last few weeks, I've received letters personally from five different Christian charities. I've had mass mailings from various secular charities. Um, I've been asked in the street to support the work with the homeless and to give to look after war heroes. Um, I've read newspapers which have had adverts um, full of... um, glossy photos of people in desperate need all around the world. Um, And just over nine days ago, of course, it was children in need on our TVs. And then here at St. David's, if you've been with us, you'll know that we've had um, opportunities to give to support the work of Operation Christmas Child and um, the North Cotswold Food Bank, um, as well, of course, as the ongoing costs of ministry here at St. David's. Um, I don't know about you, I I think we are um, overwhelmed often. We're bombarded by the extraordinary needs of our world. And I wonder how that makes you feel. How do you respond by the extraordinary needs of the world around us? And Do you feel guilty? Um, I often feel guilty. Um, I feel guilty about the fact that I enjoy a very comfortable life. Um, I have a very happy family, and I know lots of people don't. I feel guilty because I I know that I probably could do a lot more to help these people uh, than I do. Um, Sometimes it's not so much guilt, it's just guilt's younger brother, embarrassment. I just feel awkward by the requests, um, Maybe sometimes you feel sad uh, at the requests that come across your path. That's a slightly purer emotion, isn't it? Maybe you just feel um, that your heart goes out to those in need, and you find yourself weeping uh, for children in abject poverty. Um, maybe you just feel overwhelmed because you look at all these needs and, and you just think I can't, I can't fix that, I can't put it right, it's too big for me. Perhaps at times uh, you feel slightly cross. You wouldn't admit it, but, but deep down you, you slightly resent being badgered for money. I mean, hang on, I've got to live too. Just leave me alone. Stop manipulating me with all these photos. Uh, maybe you feel anxious. Maybe, maybe you know that it would only take um, a couple of bad decisions or freak accidents or extraordinary events in the weather to make your life like some of those that you're being asked to help. Or perhaps... Um, like me, you just feel a mix of all those things. Different emotions at different times. How, how should we respond to the extraordinary level of need we're continually confronted with in this world? What should we do? We've uh, reached chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, and with that, a bit of a gear shift. It's on page uh, 1162. If you've um, let your Bible fall shut, then you'll, it'll help you to have that open in front of you as, as we look at it together. Um, and Paul has spent the first half of this letter, um, so to speak, um, defending and setting out what true gospel ministry looks like. And he's been urging this, this young church to remain faithful to the ministry that he's been performing. But now, in chapter 8, he starts to address some issues in the life of the church. And the first thing he talks about is giving. I think it's a, it's a slightly complicated situation, but I'm sure we can get our heads around it. You see, Paul's, Paul's primary focus when he was on his missionary journeys was to preach the gospel and to plant churches. That's what he loved to do. But a kind of a second string to his bow, a, a secondary concern that he had, uh, was to persuade churches, once they were established, um, to send money back to the mother church in Jerusalem, which was struggling in dire poverty. And this church was being persecuted mercilessly by the Jewish religious leaders Um, People were being thrown into prison. Many were killed even. Um, Many struggled to to work for a living. And on top of that, they were experiencing um, a a famine. And so Paul uh, wanted to send money back to this place where the gospel had first begun. Well, about a year before Paul wrote to Corinthians, the church in Corinth had decided to start gathering a collection of money to send back to Jerusalem. But... Um, the months have gone past and that initial goodwill has slightly petered out all those pledges all those good intentions they've just slightly evaporated they've lost their way i guess we can relate to that can't we i mean i mean i guess i guess we often uh make a resolution that we don't go through with i mean i mean i wonder whether back in september you, you thought that you'd revisit your giving but actually you've never quite got round to it Well, as Paul sits down to pen two Corinthians, he knows he has to talk to them about giving and good intentions and seeing things through to completion. But I wonder if you noticed what was slightly unusual about Paul's approach. I wonder if you noticed the one thing that doesn't get mentioned in these 15 verses as Mark read them. See, if you were a modern-day fundraiser... There is one thing you would spend all your time talking about, and Paul barely refers to it. If it struck you, Paul barely talks about the needs of the church, who the money is going to be sent to in these verses. It's extraordinary, isn't it? He barely touches on it. He focuses on something completely different as the basis for Christian giving. So what does he focus on? Well, he begins by taking them to the far north of Greece, to a group of churches up there, in Macedonia, and he talks about the model of the Macedonian churches, because he wants to teach them, which is our first point this evening, that God's grace makes us generous. God's grace makes us generous. It is pretty extraordinary what's happened in these churches up in Macedonia. So, Just look with me at verse 2. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up In rich generosity. So what's the experience of this church? Well, severe trials, likely being persecuted for their faith. They're in extreme poverty. It doesn't look promising ground in terms of raising money. It looks parched, it looks barren. But what has come out of it? Well, overflowing joy, overflowing joy, welling up into rich generosity. You see, there's something pretty miraculous about this, isn't it? So they're giving. Well, it's extremely sacrificial. Verse 3. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. They're giving as spontaneous. So reading on, entirely of their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service for the saints. See, Paul didn't dare ask them for money, given how poor they were. But they've come knocking at his door. Saying, please let us give, please. It's true generosity, isn't it? It's an amazing thing. If you're not a Christian here this evening, I wonder how you explain it. If you are a Christian, I wonder how you explain it. I wonder how it makes sense to you. There is something miraculous about this level of generosity. So I think we all know deep down that being generous is a good thing. I mean, would you rather be described as a generous person or a stingy person? I suspect most of us would rather be generous people. We know generosity is a good thing. And yet it does not come naturally to the human heart. Our natural instinct is to take and not to give. See, we see things, they look good to us, we want them and we take them inside the human heart, that there's a continual lust for more. It's what a whole economy is built upon. And that is why true generosity is just not natural. So, um, I wonder if you know how much money was raised um, nine days ago at Children in Need. Uh, apparently, on the night, they raised a record £26.7 million. Now, I don't want to criticise that. I think that's an amazing amount of money. Uh, I think people went to extraordinary lengths to raise that money. I hope that the money will do a lot of good. Uh, but let's just put that figure into context. I wonder if you know how much money was spent on the National Lottery that week? 65 million pounds. It's extraordinary? Nearly three times as much money was spent that week on the National Lottery as it was given to children in need. And not just that week, every week, unless it's a rollover, when it's more likely to be in excess of 100 million spent on the lottery. See, our natural instinct is not to give, it's to take. Here's another stat. I wonder if you know how much it would cost to solve the problem of world hunger. Apparently it would be something in the region of 20 billion pounds a year. In the UK and the US, we spend 27 billion on cosmetics and perfume. In this country alone, we spend 23 billion pounds a year on beer. Isn't that extraordinary? See, as a country on our own, the UK could solve the problem of world hunger. We could lift 800 million people out of malnutrition. We could save nearly 10 million lives a year if we all stopped drinking beer and drank water instead. That's all it would take. But it's not going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen. Because we're not naturally generous people. The human heart finds it very hard to give and very easy to take. See, that is why what Paul describes in the Macedonian church is so miraculous. And he has a very simple explanation for it. He says, look, this is the hand of God at work. This is God's grace. Look with me at 8 verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Grace, Um, it's a Bible word uh, for God's unconditional, unmerited, unearned, extravagant gift. And what is the gift that God has given the Macedonians? It's their generosity. Isn't that striking? See, Paul says, look at this church who are being phenomenally generous. Do you know how you make sense of that? God's grace. God has given that generosity to them. It's a gift. It's not their great moral achievement it's a gift so we've seen this theme a number of times in the letter already paul keeps talking about how the gospel or god's grace works inside us to change our hearts it's been described as god writing his law on our hearts by his spirit he's talked about us being transformed into the likeness of jesus from glory into glory he's talked about having the light of god shining in our hearts or being a new creation that the old has gone the new has come Time and again, Paul wants to hammer into these Corinthians that it is God who takes our stingy, self-obsessed, greedy hearts and by his grace begins to turn them out. He begins to make us generous. See, God's grace makes us generous. That's what the Macedonian model teaches us. But how? How does that work? Our second point: Jesus' grace has made us rich. Verse 9 is the verse that Steve pointed out at the beginning of the service. 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And if you know who the richest man on the face of the planet is, uh, you may well do. He's a Mexican called Carlos Slim. Uh, I'm not sure he is that slim, but Carlos Slim is his name. Um, He's made a lot of money from telecommunications, telecommunications. And I mean a lot of money. He's currently worth $69 billion. Um, And I think he's had a bad year because last year he was worth $74 billion. When Paul says that Jesus Christ was rich, he's not talking in terms of Carlos Slim wealth. That's just peanuts. See, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the one through whom and for whom the universe exists. Everything belongs to him. Everything. See, Carlos's Slim's wealth is a minuscule part of a tiny fraction of a percentage point of the material wealth that belonged to Christ. And yeah, I guess that probably isn't what Paul has in mind when he says that Jesus was rich. See, because Jesus enjoyed riches... That money could never buy. Jesus dwelt in eternity, which meant that death and old age could never hurt him. How much would people pay for that nowadays? See, Jesus had such a weight of glory that even angels would shield their eyes because they couldn't bear to look at him, so glorious was he. Jesus lived in the continual presence of his Father which meant that he enjoyed the most intense and unending joy, far beyond anything we could ever imagine. Jesus enjoyed riches that money could never buy. He was rich beyond all comprehension, but he became poor. He shed his glory. He, he took a human nature to himself, he became a tiny bundle of cells inside a mother's womb. As soon as he was born, he was laid in a manger and shortly after became a refugee. During his three years of ministry, he had no home. we have got no record of him owning anything apart from the clothes that he stood up in. But again, that probably isn't what Paul has in mind when he talks about Jesus becoming poor. Because the true poverty that Jesus experienced was on the cross. As the nails were hammered through his bones, pinning him to those beams of wood, he lost everything. He was stripped bare, he was put through the most excruciating pain, his life was slowly sucked out of him. And worst of all, his relationship with his father was dashed to pieces. He hung there alone and forsaken. Where for eternity he'd only known the love and delight of his father. He now experienced the full force of God's anger and hatred. See, Jesus gave up everything. It was, it was literally hell for him. Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor. It is the single most tragic riches to rags story you'll ever come across but it's also the most wonderful. See, why did he do it? Why did he do it? Did you see those three words in the middle of the phrase that we've been looking at? Verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. For your sakes, for you. He did that for you. He was richer than your wildest dreams, and he forfeited it all willingly. He became poorer than your worst nightmare for you, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. See, Jesus' experience on that cross should have been ours. If we were to find ourselves standing before God on the final day outside of Jesus, then we'd be found spiritually bankrupt. We'd have the most crushing debt resting on us for the way that we've treated him. We'd be facing a debt that we could never repay. See, We deserve an eternity in hell. We deserve the torment of having everything stripped away from us. We deserve to live in such abject poverty that a slum would look like a millionaire's mansion. But Jesus became poor for you so that you could be rich, so that you could be forgiven totally and forever. So you could be a child of God, so you could have his spirit within you, so that you could receive the promise that he gives to all his children, that he will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, so that he could give you a home in heaven that could be never taken from you, and so he could work in you a character that was radiant and perfect and pure. that you could live forever in glory jesus grace has made you rich so imagine this imagine that um, tomorrow morning carlos slim calls you up and he offers to give you his entire fortune all 69 billion dollars of it if you'll only give up your relationship with jesus or if you're not a christian he'll give you that entire fortune if you simply promise Never to give your life to Christ. What would you do? What would you do? Just just think for a moment of everything you could do with 69 billion dollars. Would you consider it? Would you weigh it up as a swap? If you would, then you've not even begun to grasp how rich Jesus has made you. And you've not begun to grasp how poor you are without Him. See, Jesus' grace has made us rich. And that's why His grace can make us generous. If you're overwhelmed by the extravagance of Jesus' generosity to you, then of course you'll want to be generous in turn. But this is more than just following His example. If you have a sense of the true riches that Jesus has lavished upon you, then you'll find yourself wonderfully liberated, free to give. Because you'll know that however much you give of yourself, you'll never exhaust what Jesus gave you first. If you've tasted what true riches look like, well, you know that you'll never be poor again. You're free to give. God's grace makes us generous because Christ's grace makes us rich. And yet, it's not automatic. See, that's the lesson from the Corinthian church. It's not automatic. You can receive what Jesus has done for you and stay pretty stingy. See, this church has somehow stopped being generous. And so, Paul's message is simple it's our third point. Let God's grace work in your hearts. See, Paul is so careful. Again, I wonder if it struck you. He is so careful. He's treading so tentatively as he works his way through these verses. Verse 8, I'm not commanding you. Verse 10, here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. See, Paul never gives advice. Paul has authority to give commands from the Lord Jesus. When he gives advice, well, you're free to accept it or reject it. But that's the point. Paul knows that their they're giving, their generosity, has to be a free act from their hearts. He can't force it out of them. It won't do them any good if they write a huge check through clenched teeth. Paul cannot simply command them to give, which is why he takes so much trouble in, in verses uh, 11 to 15 and, in fact, the rest of the chapter, to answer the questions and the misgivings that the Corinthians might have about this collection. So for those who are saying... Um, I've hardly got anything, Paul. I've hardly got anything to give. He says in verse 12, if the willingness is there, the gift's acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. It's like the widow's mite. Actually, I guess it's like the Macedonian church. The check they wrote probably didn't have many zeros on it. See, it's not about the size of the check. It's about whether your heart is moved by the grace of God. See, Paul tackles all their concerns. But at the end of the day, he's clear. It is vital for this church's spiritual health. It is for their best that they let God's grace work in their hearts to bring about generosity. So what he's saying in verse 7. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us. He says you're great at all these things. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Would that be true of us? Do we excel in the grace of giving? Let God's grace work in you. Thelma Howard uh, was a housekeeper. She worked in a large house in the middle of the last century for about 30 years. And every Christmas, her boss would summon her in to his office where he'd give her a Christmas card uh, with a small piece of paper inside. She died uh, about uh, 20 years ago in 1994 in relative poverty When the executors of her will went through her possessions, they found those little slips of paper, all stuffed neatly into an envelope in her drawer. They were recognized as share certificates, and the name on the bottom of each of the certificates was Walt Disney. She'd worked for Walt Disney for 30 years. She was a millionaire many, many times over. But from the way that she lived, and tragically from the way that she died, it looks like she had very little idea of what she'd been given. Is that true of you? So, does the way that you live, will the way that you die, show that you know what you've been given? Will the way you use your money show that you understand what you've been given? Well, Paul is clear. Let God's grace work in your hearts. See, when you next come across a request for money, where will your mind go? What will be the first thing you think about? See, our natural instinct will be to look at the need and then our resources and then the need and then our resources and then the need and then our resources and we'll think, have I got the time? Have I got the money? Have I got the desire to be involved? And that'll leave us looking pretty Corinthian because we'll just feel poor. We'll feel stretched. In the end, we'll be unable to help. But letting God's grace work in us means that our first move is to look to Christ and what he has given us first. It means to look at his extraordinary gift, to look at his promises, to to remember how rich we are. And then we'll be free to think about giving in a completely different way, in a Macedonian way. Now, perhaps it'll be right not to give. Modern media means that we we do come across far more needs than a single person can hope to carry. I'm sure that the Lord doesn't mean us to be involved with every possible charity that crosses our paths. It is important to have particular things that we're committed to, not least the care of Christians who are poorer than us, as Paul was so concerned to see happen. But when you're confronted by a need, All is clear. Look at God's grace. And then you'll respond, not with guilt or anxiety or fear or bitterness. You'll respond in a way that the world can't make sense of. Because you'll rejoice at what you've been given first. Why don't I pray? God of grace, you are overwhelmingly generous to us. And we're so slow to appreciate the extraordinary measure of your grace. Please thrill our hearts. Help us to be rightly overwhelmed by what you've done for us. That when we're faced with the needs of the world around us, we don't feel crushed. We don't feel guilty. But we can rejoice in what you have done for us that we'll be free to think about serving and giving and generosity in a way that reflects Christ and not the selfish hearts that we know are our own. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.